And welcome to yet another rousing episode of The Dice Are Screaming. Oh. Ooh, that was <laughs> rather sharp. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we form the distalt known as The Dice Are Screaming Podcast. Each of us separate dicemen, but coming together as one to bring you stuff. <laughs> one podcast to bind them all. Mm. <laughs> and then the darkness ruled them. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, with much, heavy on the dorkness. Yeah, so we got an action-packed episode. It's also our first one where we're actually uh, having a sponsor, so make sure you check that out. Yeah, in addition, and, oh. you know, I, I, I gotta say, it's something that, you know, we unilaterally support, so we're feeling pretty good about this. Right on. So, uh, with that, we have some call-ins, 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 call-ins segment of our show... Yes, Larry Hamilton and Frostoff have both called in from the depths. Ah, excellent, excellent. Yes. So, without further ado, we'll get right to it. So first we're going to be there with Larry. Hey, fellas, this is Larry Follow Me and Die. Um, been uh, listening to a couple of your episodes here on the uh, gaming accessories one. I really like that. I uh, happened to back the Hero Forge Kickstarter the first time around, and I've got a miniature for Griswold, the guy behind Follow Me and Die. And uh, I'm not real good at painting, and I kind of got started, and all those things I set it aside and haven't finished it yet. Uh, maybe someday. Another uh, interesting thing is uh, Gaming Paper is located in Grand Rapids, and uh, they have paper that's got a finish on it that you can eat, eat sometimes erase it and reuse it um, and it's in like three foot wide rolls that I think are 30 feet long pretty cool alright thanks for that Larry yeah gaming paper well we'll have to definitely check that out especially if it comes in 30 foot yard long sheets or a 10 yard yeah, hello. I don't want to see the scroll case that carries Ooh. that around. Yeah, but then you can <laughs> reuse it, uh, you know, having a finish on it. Uh, I, I imagine he's talking about uh, dry erase or wet erase markers. Hmm. All right. Yeah, I mean, well, that and there's no rule against using good old-fashioned pencil. Huh. Yeah. You know, that it's not against the law yet. Mm. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, I'm... You know, accessories are a big thing with gamers, and, you know, all sorts of things are out there that, you know, well, you know, we've always had, a, in gaming, a lot of accessories come out from electronic dice rollers to uh, dice towers and uh, mats and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, the, the big thing is, is now more than ever, electronics, you know, uh, in the form of your tablets and laptops and smartphones, they're really available more than they ever were before. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a lot more uh, side gear possibilities exist than ever existed before. I, it's grown exponentially, in my opinion, and I don't think it's bad. I, I think that, you know, there are people who have a use for these tools, and it's kind of awesome that, you know, there were always people who could have used these tools, and now they're available, as opposed to before, where uh, they're you know, really, if you were in the market for something oddball, uh, it was a challenge. I, there weren't a lot of gaming specialty shops, uh, you know, 
everything was out of the corner of a comic book store or uh, in a back corner of a bookstore. You didn't really see gaming dedicated locations with conveniences specifically for gamers. Yeah. And, hey, thanks, interwebs, because now stuff is everywhere. I love it. All right, so thanks for that, Larry. And, uh, of course, we always follow you, but we hope not to die. So uh, <laughs> keep those calls coming in and doing great on your podcasts and blogs, too. So thanks, Larry. Uh, right now, though, we're going to get back into it with some call-in from Brothos. He's got two for us, so hold on to your hats. We'll back, be right back. Gentlemen, it's Froth. First, I wanted to thank y'all for the shout-out. That was very kind of y'all. Second, I wanted to express my frustration with this Anchor app. There was things I like about it, but the notifications of your favorites is pretty lacking. Because sometimes it'll move them up to the top, but y'all's was, was kind of buried in the middle, so I didn't know y'all had, had a new episode. And then I go and click on it, and all of a sudden, a couple of shows miraculously appear so i'd missed everything since lankmar which was excellent by the way i don't know i know next to nothing about lankmar even though i've got the uh, city of adventure book and uh so i thought that was great i'll have to catch up on accessories but i like the saving throw episode too i agree with y'all um about a lot of things including the flexibility of the three save system anyway sorry for missing some of it thanks for the shout see ya What's up, y'all? It's Froth here. I'm getting caught up on y'all's stuff. So this is on the accessories episode, which I'm really enjoying. I'm like halfway through, but I um, wanted to go ahead and comment before I forget what I was going to say. So I switched over to tokens a while back instead of minis. I didn't like the random element or the cost, and I ended up with a couple of decent supplements towards the end of fourth edition's run where they had like you know 12 14 sheets of tokens printed with them and it really helps when you have those encounters with multiple of the same uh, enemies so it's got like 15 bullywogs you know like 20 goblins and stuff like that is really not affordable no matter what minis you're using i'm also trying to get more into paper craft y'all were talking about dice towers there's this killer Fat Dragon Games Dice Tower I'm wanting to build, but I'm running out of time. See y'all later. All right. Well, thanks, Broth. Uh, yeah, sorry the Anchor app is not uh, doing its job on updating on that. Uh, that's probably something that uh, you should oh. let them know. But uh, glad you caught up with us nonetheless. And uh, thanks for that uh, tip on the miniatures. Yeah, paper gaming miniatures is the cheap way to go. And, you know, it's economical and it's easy to carry. So. Oh. And here's a hot tip, you know, if you got poker chips handy and writing implements, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, got some red, white, and blue poker chips handy. Uh, <laughs> you just got your tokens. I've done it before, and I'll probably do it again. Uh, Larry, there's, Larry mentioned the uh, number of products that are coming out, you know, and we were momentarily... Speaking of the vast array of accessories, and those are awesome. However, uh, there's a great point here to be made that there's a lot of household stuff you can use and convert into gaming accessories of your very own. And mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorites is the good old fashioned poker chip. Yep, I, I advocate its use, and you know, the good old bottle cap. <laughs> oh, yeah, this uh, Mountain Dew bottle cap represents an ogre. 
<laughs> oh, okay. Well, you know, but it is the theater of the mind, so, you know, sometimes when you're, uh, you know, miniatures can be uh, quite uh, expensive, and, of course, they require the patience of Job and the talent of Michelangelo to paint. So, yeah. yeah talking I, about your Shazam moment there, you know, it's uh, Wisdom of Solomon. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Strength of the Hercules. Oh. Yeah, just run right through the whole rigmarole. It's it's a piece of work. It's a labor of love. But gamers do love miniatures. Yep, and there's a large collection of just uh, easily to print out uh, paper miniatures that are stand-up or just uh, round little pog-like things. I use pogs. No, I, I'm just kidding. Um, whatever you use, you know, some people even using uh, old magic cards and stuff, you know, that uh, are commons. Yeah, just pop them out and use a little cutter. So... A lot of things are available to you, so uh, yeah, thanks for that. And also on that note, Lankmar, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Uh, I have some make culpas to give about that. I did misname, as it was pointed out, uh, the Grey Mouser Sword. It's not uh, Needle. That would belong to Arya, which is a different one, but hey, it's all it's, it's a sharp, pointy thing. His was called Scalpel, and his dagger was called Cat's Paw. Or but, Cat's Claw. Cat's Claw, all right, yeah. And there you go, Mike getting the right of it for me. Um, also want to mention that uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics has also come out with a Lankmar set, so uh, check that out. But oh, well the worth the plug, too, because Dungeon Crawl Classics has done a great job recapturing the feel of early-style gaming. It just, obviously, slightly ever so slightly different rule set, you know, and some terrific homage material, but also... A little bit of a new spin, you know, a little little something different than what you were used to before. Yeah, if you want to use the DCC uh, magic system, they uh, you can you can transplant it, but the magic system in there is much different. But uh, yeah, pick it up if you're interested in that stuff. Uh, otherwise, you know, the old TSR stuff still holds up. The City of Adventure, as we mentioned, is still a beloved classic by the fact that its modular city system allows you to generate very quickly and efficiently a block of heavily urbanized fantasy city area. Yeah, and I mean, this translates to any game or any system. You know, yeah. the, the handiness of that particular book is that it transcends its own uh, genre, okay? It, it It is indeed, you know, Lankmar, City of Thieves, uh, supplement for D&D, but you can take the material provided to you in there and make use of it in almost any setting. So, yeah, I mean, that one's just a gold mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, and speaking of that gold mines, we have a good topic for you tonight. Oh, yeah, you could expect no less from the roadside skunk of gaming podcasts. Oh, <laughs> roadside skunk. Yeah. <laughs> We're not even as pretty as the junkyard dog of gaming podcasts. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Where that vague odor would makes you wish, wish you'd had the windows up. Uh, <laughs> or at least have to go through a car wash afterwards. All right, tonight we're going to be talking, we're going to be, actually be doing a two-parter. So we're going to be talking about this for this weekend uh, for Tuesday's podcast. So we're going to be talking about the Forgotten Realms. Oh boy. Yeah, and I'm just going to do one spoiler now. Uh, right out of the gate. This session is dedicated to the classic box set. The next session will be about the more current involvement of Forgotten Realms in D&D, 
uh, and in the fifth edition. Uh, but this, this is our moment for the classic original box set. Yep, and we'll be back to talk about that after the break. So join us for that. All right, and we're back from the break and a message from our sponsor, which we just want to say is thank you, Anchor. And uh, this podcast is not only brought to you by Anchor, but uh, we're obviously very happy with what we're getting from it, and we've gotten a lot of mileage out of it. So thank you all for your support and listening. Right on. But now, let's get into it. Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to lead off here because... Uh, this one was near and dear to my heart, um, and this does cause some consternation for folks. Uh, you know, there's quite the rift between Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms. Uh, as it turns out, I didn't really initially fully grasp uh, just how deep that divide went, but, you know, I have straddled both worlds, uh, John Carter style, both mm. Earth and Mars, Forgotten mm. Realms and Greyhawk. Love them both. Okay, unabashedly, without shame, I adore both of these campaign settings. Uh, I have a abiding love in my heart for Greyhawk because, firstest with the mostest, it showed up out of nowhere, and it was just this amazing place where everything that I was getting in terms of modules, uh, that's where it was all situated. Years down the road came Forgotten Realms. Uh, and it, it wasn't born whole cloth instantaneously. It, it had little inklings and snippets starting to creep its way into Dragon Magazine based on the writings of Ed Greenwood. Uh, that publication included a lot of wonderful little articles with, uh, oh, for instance, new spells... Uh, with histories behind the new spells, and uh, intelligent weapons or you know, uh, semi-relic type weapons that had more character and uniqueness than many of the, like, hey, everybody loves a plus two sword, okay? No hate there. Yeah, this is a no hate zone. Everybody loves a plus two sword. Uh, but these were weapons that came along with a history, a series of people who had wielded it before, and usually a significant power and then some kind of little quirk that made it unique. Uh, for instance, uh, <laughs> uh, an example would be a blade that never requires sharpening uh, or care of any kind. Uh, and further... Uh, makes a bell-like tone uh, only when bidden to do so. Well, why would you have a sword? I don't even know. But the uniqueness, the individuality, the character that went into stuff, that was the marker for me of what Forgotten Realms was going to be, and the box set did not disappoint. Yeah, and it came from mostly uh, articles in Dragon Magazine, Pages from the Mages, which... As Mike said, uh, were uh, new spells, and they were always heavily tied to uh, Ed Greenwood's Forgotten Realms campaign, which you got snippets out of here and there. Uh, there was one module, I guess, uh, was it uh, Miss Dranor and one. Um, nonetheless, you know, uh, it, it was his own home campaign, and with that came uh, several 
unique characters uh, that were hinted at and then later would be fleshed out after the release. But the Forgotten Realms box set was uh, definitely a big step forward for TSR and it set the uh, bar for what they would later come out in campaign supplements. Where early days of uh, AD&D roughly ran the gamut of modules or uh, tournament adventures, whatnot, you, you know, the Forgotten Realms uh, campaign seemed to supplant for a lot of people uh, the Greyhawk campaign, and I was a big Greyhawker at the time, but uh, I had already done my own work, and so, you know, it was kind of my campaign versus, say, just uh, Greyhawk or Gary's campaign, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So, for me, the Forgotten Realms was kind of a, a little bit of a culture shock, but I wasn't completely unfriendly with it, but uh, since we're just talking about the first one, I'm just going to gush about uh, the good things about it, and it was a campaign set that really provided a lot of detail with what I felt is one of its later detractions, is it was over-detailed. Of course, when you start out fresh, you know, there's not a lot known, so everything is kind of new. This was a pretty open campaign world. It didn't seem to dictate. And I don't really get that it was overly developed. And there were even with all the splat books that came out later. Yeah, I'm going to make a, a very specific point regarding that. The gist of it here is that there were different types of detail filled in. In Greyhawk, they provided you with the name of a nation, uh, the capital city, the average likely occupants uh, broken down by percentage, you know, how many, you know, what percentage of gnomes and elves and dwarves would, would or could be found there, uh, and kind of a, a glimpse, a snapshot of the size of population, standing army, things like right, that. Right, and so, also like resources in another part of it. Uh, you know, yeah. you'd expect to find, you know... Like, Popular imports and exports. Yeah, but know. it was very... It, it was not well detailed. And to some people that was a strength, and to others that was a detriment. So Forgotten Realms answered that lack of detail. Different type of detail. Uh, instead of emphasizing the aspects that you saw in Greyhawk, you saw a much more... Who are the legendary figures? Who are the movers and shakers? Who are the, uh, you know... Uh, cool kids and who are the widow makers. Uh, you, you get more of a storytelling aid in this. Uh, and while it did provide uh, a little picture of a snapshot of nations, like just a, a blurb section giving you a little window into the character of a particular country, it didn't expand on everything right out of the gate. Uh, the the campaign left a lot open. Uh, certain key named areas displayed on the maps were covered in the cyclopedia, and you could get a window into what they were about, uh, but it didn't fill in all the blanks. So that the sense that it was detailed, I didn't get that. I, I got the sense that more effort was put into giving... Uh, an impression of what forces are in conflict with each other and what is this place about? Uh, you know, who are these different gods? Why do they, you know, why do they move towards the aims that they move toward and who are their servants on the earth? Uh, and 
then with all of those named, you just got handed this giant playground in which to go ahead and fill in the blanks on your own. Right, and as I mentioned earlier about the standard that was set, um, this would pretty much be uh, the standard for mini box sets for a long time to come from TSR. Um, it was came in two booklets, and of course, Greyhawk had that, but this was one where it was, there was the Cyclopedia of the Realms, which was more a general knowledge, something that you could let your players read. It details not only just, as Mike said, the gods and movers and shakers, but it also detailed the races and classes, how they fit into the Forgotten Realms, specifically Toral, and the areas that were detailed, there were large city maps where before you just kind of had a vague entry and you were kind of went with it as you would, you know, develop it on your own or occasionally wait for TSR to do it. But then the next one was the DM's source book of the realms, which was specifically for the DM, and that provided a great deal of detail about monsters and encounters and had adventures and sites that you could look into. And also, we could we would be remiss if we didn't stop and pause about the design ethos. Yes. Uh, the <clears throat> pages were made to look like parchment, and it was seeped in sepia-like uh, fonts and inks. So it had this kind of aged, almost uh, relic-like feel. Yeah, despite the fact that there's crisp, clear uh, print here uh, in a pretty standard font, uh, the background paper readily creates the impression of weathered, aged parchment. Or parchment. And at, at first glance, it just leaves you feeling like you're cracking up, you're cracking open something old uh, and peering within. Now, I'm, I'm looking right now at the Cyclopedia of the Realms uh, at its table of contents. And the detail that we're talking about that some thought was too much was the way in which time is measured uh, in these realms, uh, the names of various nations, and the naming of people. Uh, yeah, if we just stop right there and uh, focus on two points on that one. Uh, time in the realms, you know, they gave the days and the months and how the years were named and how there was kind of a system to it all so that you would come up with that, which... You know, provided a different window. I mean, Greyhawk had its different days. Like oh, Wheel sure. Day and Woe Day and Free Day. And, you know, these have pretty much uh, been standard in a lot of campaign settings. But here was the one that went pretty clearly on its own kind of cosmology. And so, rather than being some obscura tucked away in the back, it was also put in there and uh, right out front. Now, uh, just to kind of take it away from Mike for a minute, uh, let me talk about the maps. They had several maps in here. And they had this nice hex overlay, which was a clear overlay you would put. Because they didn't put hexes over this map. Like in the Greyhawk set, it was already hexed out. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, admittedly, it's made to easily be observed with hex. Uh, but <laughs> it is not itself uh, hex dependent. The map itself was just an open field. And then you apply a hex map over top of it yeah, these to clear measure plastics. distance overlay that could be uh, just put over anywhere. So it made it a lot easier to uh, read the fine detail that they put in here because these maps are kind of had to be scaled down because of the immense breadth and scope of the uh, main continent. What was the main continent's name? I know the world's name is Toro. Hmm. What was the continent's name? 
Well, yeah, the, the, but whatever the main continent, most of the play took place on. Um, it kind of escapes me at the moment, but you know they had several other areas and across the sea, and eventually Caratour uh, would be added to there, and the Isles of Moonshade. But that's kind of a topic for another conversation. But you know the Forgotten Realms itself. Once uh, you got the basic areas like around Waterdeep and the Savage Coast and all that, the lands of the Inner Sea and all of them. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of detail packed right out the gate in explaining how this, these nations are set up. And you get a feel that it's not quite a normal fantasy world in the sense that, well, yes, there's dragons and wizards and all these other things, but there's a lot of machinations going on behind the scenes with factions like the Harpers. Yes, the, the Harpers and their longtime opponents, the Zentarim. Yep, and also the Red Wizards of Day and the Beast Cults of Malar and all of these other factions creep out of the antiquity. They're all included in part of the myth and legend that gives a rich background. Now, worth mentioning is that the world presented in Forgotten Realms uh, had a distinct difference between nations. Uh, to the east, you had very old, very well-developed, well-formed countries uh, with a pretty clear hierarchy and neatly defined borders. Kalisham and... Uh... Oh, uh, that would be to the distant southwest. Oh. Uh, those would be very old nations uh, with much longer courses of tradition. Uh, in the, the east, you would find Cormier, which mm. was certainly very much in the, the camp of well-developed, sophisticated nations. And as you move into the Northwest, you find independent city-states all over the place. Uh, just like large cities full of adventures uh, along a coastline that is uh, somewhat austere and inhospitable uh, with considerable wildness afoot outside the city's boundaries, uh, with people getting by, sticking close to the city, farming and things like that. Uh, so these huge centers of trade uh, and significant port cities each seem to subsist uh, on their own. They, they don't have, like, uh, a huge area of property that they milita militarily control, uh, unlike the more organized places in the East. And I, I thought that was an interesting facet, the number of free cities. And those same free cities became the basis for most of the video games that people Baldur's are familiar Gate. with. Yeah, Neverwinter, Baldur's Gate, these are places that people would have encountered in some of the video games that came out of this. Another thing for which I am thankful, because had it not been for the success of Forgotten Realms, I would not have played some pretty awesome early video games. Oh, yeah. Now, DM Sourcebook you got there. Oh, well, yeah, I was just, uh, you know, this talks more about uh, the various uh, NPCs in some de detail, like uh, Pazal's Shembro. And, uh, oh, let's see, Kelvin, Blackstaff, Arneson. You know, you have a lot of different characters in here that are pretty much the DM's tools to use either to help the players or place obstacles in the way of the players and become villains. And that's a good one. But Oh, yeah, it covers both the villainous and the noble. Uh, also, a, a fair number of the kind of neutral <laughs> yep. might come clambering into the campaign with no warning. 
um, like the uh, mercenary company, the Flaming Fist. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't start talking about Elminster, the elephant in the room with Grandrum. Yeah. Now let's just take a few minutes here. I'm not going to belabor the point, but Elminster is hate him or love him. You know, uh, he is the grand old man of the realms. He is your best friend as the DM. Um, if you don't like him, well, you don't have to use him. That's no. all there is to it. I mean, yeah. he can be as a distant or as involved as you like. Yeah, people can, you know, just hear about, oh, I heard Elminster did something, and then say, well, who cares? You can do that totally within your power. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'll admit, candidly, it was laid on a bit heavy-handedly. Elminster's thumbprint on the realms was pretty substantive. Well, he was the man who brung you kind of the information through his supposed visits to Ed Greenwood. And, you know, he would visit Ed Greenwood and leave these uh, notes or talk. Yeah, the, the Dragon Magazine articles were always told like a story, as though uh, this, you know, visiting, obscure, eccentric mage wandered in, left a pile of stuff behind, and a handful of dirty dishes in a very Gandalfian kind of mm -hmm. way, where just showed up, uh, <laughs> uh, had a nice time, and then left. Shared a few tales. And, you know, I, I rather am fond of Elminster, despite being a hardcore Greyhawker for a long time. Uh, I liked Elminster because he was as involved as you needed him to be. And much like Gandalf, and there's no uh, misstep here, and no misreading it. He was like Gandalf. He would be there when you needed him, and when you most needed him, he would be absent. Yeah, that, that, you're, that, wait, I'm not going to solve all of this for you. Come on. Right. And <laughs> Why even be adventurers? Uh, this is not the adventures of Elminster. This is yours. Maybe well, that's my personal reading into it, but that's the way I would play him. So take uh, that with a grain of salt. He's here to, put a, to give a nudge to the various pawns. Uh, and to act as a DM's ex deus machina in worst-case scenarios. Like, okay, you know, everybody's captured by the Zentarum, and uh, you're all on a work crew uh, rebuilding uh, a, you know, trade highway, uh, and along comes Elminster. And gets Flying over invisibility, uh, shooing off the Zentarum with power word stun. And, you know, <laughs> done. And they're out. Okay, let's get you out of here, suit you back up, and then send you back out. Uh, it's not here to do it for you, but it, it was a tool the DM could make use of. And a charming character with a lot of backstory. Uh, now, yeah, this was before a lot more baggage was added on, and I'm not going to touch on that. You know, obviously we will have our time to talk about that. But spending our time talking about the good things about the Grand Realms, we've uh, oh, talked about this a little bit earlier on in campaigns, that, you know, as Mike said, that there would be all these things littered through the passageway, passages of these... Uh, Manuals, especially the DM source book of the realms, where it would say when it was describing this forest, there's rumored to be a mighty beholder of a foul temper in this forest. Indeed. And uh. so they wouldn't provide anything, maybe a name, but then it was up to you as a DM, if you like that, to use it and develop it. <clears throat> Rumors have been heard of a bloody skirmish around the fortress of High Horn, in which orcs and hobgoblins out of the mountains and the Stonelands were beaten off by a large force of horse archers and lancers, Cormier regulars who issued forth to protect a caravan. Seventy-six men died, and a hundred and twelve orcs were slain. Uh, just little tidbits of news uh, that also, in passing a little bit of news, 
gave you a little window into what kinds of things have been seen in the area. Like, drow have been seen in the hills around Kulta and Derul, or Derun, in Sembia, and again in the Highdale. The High Constable patrols out of Highdale report a confused night encounter on the slopes of Hooknose Crag. A Sembian merchant reports that a band of monkey-faced, black-haired creatures with glossy male armor and glowing swords fell upon a caravan he was a part of on the East Way, just east of Thunder Gap, and, like swarming cats, slew all who offered resistance in less than a minute's fighting. You know, the, the tidbits were there to plant ideas in the DM's mind, uh, so that you weren't really dependent on exclusive released material, but rather, start, you know, you could sit down and start creating on your own, like just expand on any of those things, and it, that's how I took it. Uh, I figured this stuff is here for a reason, these, these notions, these hints, uh, I'm going to take them and run with them, and in many cases, I, I ran with them and turned them into something quite a bit larger than that mere note. Uh, I added all the extra monsters and the extra location and the plot and the villains and the whatnots, uh, but it was all within the scope of the Forgotten Realms. And having something that offered just inspiration instead of uh, the more familiar, here is the set course upon which people will go. That, it meant a lot to me at that time. I right. really stretched and my wings. When you so. buy a pre-made campaign supplement, you're looking for somebody to help you do the work so you can get on to playing the game, the fun part. And that's what the Forgotten Realms really offered. The Forgotten Realms set, at least initially, was a DM toolkit. Nothing was assumed. You didn't have to use anything, or you could insert your own material. But everything that you wanted to have in the Forgotten Realms was already there. It was just waiting for you. And you could insert or ignore as you needed. Uh, worth mentioning, they came along later, uh, owed to pretty solid sales on the initial outing of the Forgotten Realms. They followed up with quality product, uh, not so much heavy on the actual modules per se, but rather enhanced setting locations, mm -hmm. where examinations of nations. Uh, and those were really good, too. Amn, Kalamashan, and, uh, oh, I forget the other, Tethir. That yeah. was it, Tethir. Tethir, uh, yeah. I used that source book for a lengthy campaign uh, up in Lansing years ago. It was really enjoyable. It, it, the, the sections on Kalamashan, Amn, and Tethir came heavily into play in that campaign. And I really, you know, ran it out of the base books for second edition, uh, and the textbooks, as well as the Tether, Kalamshan, and Amn uh, campaign setting. Yeah. Uh, they also had campaign setting books for a wide variety of Oh, yeah, areas. from Cholt uh, to the Arctic Wastes, and then you had, uh, what is it? Uh, the one I liked was the Savage North. Ah, yes, a classic. And because it covered Silvery Moon, and then the Waterdeep one was really good, too. Yes, the Waterdeep was, I mean, really, it's a book about one city. Yeah, and it gave a treatment, but it also had the environs around, and then you found out that Myth Draenor was this huge mega dungeon, and uh, what was the dungeon in there? Undermountain, that was it. Uh, well, a whole box had all of itself, so 
I mean, we could talk about that one because there's a lot to mine out of that one. Oh, yeah. Most of these were terrific tools for DMs. If you were, if you were looking for a way to transplant information into your campaign world, uh, this was all stuff that was readily hijacked. Yeah, and so, you know, whether you played in the Forgotten Realms or you just wanted to use some stuff, it was all there to be used, and there was no shame in it. I mean, it like, you you took something like, you borrowed Zentarum Keep and just scratched off the name and renamed everything. No one would ever know. Oh, yeah. Uh, the core concepts were completely transposable, which, again, you know, a thing that I approve of as a DM. Uh, good DMs do not borrow, as I have said so many times before. They steal. Uh, without apology, too. Just steal, steal, steal. Take all your favorites, whatever you like. See a good idea on TV. Maybe it wasn't even in a fantasy show. Maybe it was in a detective show. Rip it. Yep, take Make it. use of it how you like. Use it, abuse it, wear it out. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, we're probably wearing out your patience. Uh, oh, we yeah. did have a lot to cover to get started tonight, so we thank you for that. But we got a good delve into this, and we'll return back to it uh, our next episode, Part 2 of Forgotten Realms, where we'll also cover the transition to the second and third editions. So we'll yes. be a little bit briefer, but it's a nice place to start. And if you do find a gray box that's sitting in the uh, used bin, and uh, or you know you catch one for a decent price on eBay, pick it up. No matter what uh, game you're playing, it's a great campaign set, and there's a lot of ideas to take away from it. Oh yeah, if you are looking for something that you can pick up and not merely use in its historic, classical, limited sense, but harvest for fresh ideas for your campaign, I, this is number one with a bullet to me. It's arguably one of my favorite releases from that time period. Right. Uh, from post-Greyhawk era, uh, this would probably come in the number two most influential uh, in my memory. Mm -hmm. Number one being the original Greyhawk, because so many things began there and my love for it runs deep. But number two, right after that, Forgotten Realms original box set. All right, well... With that, uh, we hope you enjoyed our podcast tonight, and uh, let us know if there's anything that we missed about the Crowd and Realms or anything you'd like us to do in the oh, future. yeah. Throw in your favorite talking points if you're familiar with the campaign setting and got a tidbit you particularly liked. Again, you can leave us a message on Anchor, or you can get a hold of us on Facebook. Ah, also yes. And, of course, Twitter. Yeah, you can get us on the Twitter bird there on uh, Death Hand Gaming. That's and me. Magi Fox, which is I. All right, and so we'll bid you adieu and have a great weekend. And may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.